This is Sound Ideas. I'm Charlie Schlenker. One state representative says he wants an open and transparent redistricting process. And that means more than just having hearings around the state. It's it's a process that allows the public to have input. Republican Tim Butler talks about a redistricting commission and other fair map ideas. Plus, a winner of the Bloomington Human Relations Commission Black History Essay Contest shares their thoughts about a prominent African-American that it's important to remember. Adrut Kulkarni tells you about Jesse Owens. You can listen to new music from Dan Hubbard and find out how tadpoles behave just like baby birds. According to ISU research, they beg. All that and a news update on the way. This is Sound Ideas on WGLT. Support for Sound Ideas comes from Bloomington Normal Audiology, the best hearing device center in the Panagraph Reader's Choice Awards for the sixth year in a row. Bloomington Normal Audiology thanks the listeners and their continued vote of confidence as the leaders in hearing and technology. With a practice featuring five doctors, including two who wear hearing devices themselves, BNA takes a genuine interest in each patient and helps you keep hearing the most important sounds of your life. More information at bnaudiology.com. Bloomington Normal Audiology, here for you. This is Sound Ideas. I'm Charlie Schlenker. Let's run down some of the day's top stories. McLean County's testing positivity rate broke 4% for the first time in nearly two months. That comes as health officials report 38 new confirmed or probable cases. The number of people hospitalized with COVID-19 held at 24, according to the McLean County Health Department. McLean County trails all neighboring counties in COVID vaccination rates. County Health Department Administrator Jessica McKnight says the county is still catching up from the start of the vaccine rollout when counties with higher COVID death rates got the vaccines first. She says limited supplies in February caused by shipment delays forced many to wait until this month to get their first shot. You can't give a first dose if you don't have it. And so and then you can't give a second dose if it's not due yet. About 12% of the county's residents have received both vaccine doses. According to the Illinois Department of Public Health, the state average of fully vaccinated is about 15%. Data also shows a higher percentage of vaccine recipients in McLean County are still waiting for a second dose. A Bloomington attorney is part of a national push to make legal aid more available to victims of elder abuse. Megan McLaughlin Wood is with Prairie State Legal Services. She was selected as a fellow through the Equal Justice Works Elder Justice Program. Wood says she hasn't seen as many cases as expected, but each victim often faces several legal challenges. They may need an order of protection and also assistance with changing their housing. And then they may have some debt issues because part of the abuse was taking out credit cards in their name. The program focuses on civil legal issues, including financial exploitation, housing, guardianship, and public benefits. Wood says more victims are likely to come out as word gets out about the services. All 12 of Illinois' public universities will switch to the Common Application beginning this fall. The Common App allows students to apply to hundreds of schools across the country with a single online application. Illinois Deputy Governor for Education Jesse Ruiz says the move is a win-win for public universities and Illinois students. I think it does reduce uh, logistical barriers and more importantly brings more opportunity to students through the Common App to access many more universities with one application process. 
perhaps some that they may not have otherwise explored. Currently, only three of the state public universities use the Common App, along with 32 private institutions statewide. This is Sound Ideas on 89.1 FM, WGLT, and WGLT.org. I'm Charlie Schlenker. Support for WGLT comes from Bloomington Normal Audiology. BNA continues its educational video series, Hear My Story, with local patient Robert Handley. Once I got the Bluetooth hearing aid, I'd say 90% of the people that I talk to on the phone, I can understand. Didn't have that before. Robert's full story can be found at bnaudiology.com. You're listening to Bloomington Normal's Public Media. Next month, the Illinois House Redistricting Committee is set to hold a series of hearings to determine the direction the map redrawing process proceeds. Lawmakers won't have census data until September, but are constitutionally required to complete the process by the end of June. State Representative Tim Butler has been named as the Republican spokesperson for the redistricting committee. He's been an advocate for creating an independent commission to handle the process and says that sort of proposal has received support on both sides of the aisle. Christine Hatfield speaks with Butler about his priorities as the redistricting process begins. We need a process that is transparent and open, and that means more than just having hearings around the state. It's it's a process that allows the public to have input. Uh, I am someone, along with uh, most of the members of my caucus, who have supported the commission method, which unfortunately we've ignored here in Illinois. And I, I think that would be a great way to get better public input on the map making process that we go through every 10 years, if we had greater involvement of, of the public themselves and not letting the politicians sit behind closed doors and uh, and draw the maps. I think beyond that is it's how do we reckon with this situation around the data and the delay in, in the decennial census data now until sounds like September before we get the actual data that, that we need. So a lot of questions around um, what data we're going to use if the Democrats decide to run a map early. And I think that will be, I mean, that's going to be a big part of the discussion, I think, uh, this spring. What are some of the other hurdles ahead? Having a public input is is important. And, you know, I, I've seen where like the Senate Democrats are, are going to roll out a, a website where people can draw their own maps. Gee, that's, that's, that's great. But how are you going to have, you know, are you going to take that as a legislator and actually draw maps based on that public input. You know, I'm skeptical that that's the role of that website. Uh, I think it's just a, an avenue for the Democrats to say, oh, hey, we're, we're asking for public input. But at the end of the day, I mean, and this, is, this has happened in a bipartisan manner over the decades, either party uh, sits behind closed doors with their staff and with their attorneys. Whereas if we went to a, a more open process, where we actually allowed people to to help make the decisions, uh, we would have a process that is that is much better than we have today, I believe. What do you hope to focus on in your new role? What are your priorities? Our priorities are, number one, engaging the governor to make sure that he's true to his word about uh, upholding fair maps. And yeah, there might be different definitions of fair maps, but I think everybody can agree with more public input, with more transparency, things like taking the political data out of the process instead of using the political data to draw the lines would help create more fair maps. I think respecting everything that has been litigated and there are standards through statute or litigation when it comes to minority participation and voting rights and things like that, those absolutely have to be represented in, in maps. We have, to, we have to follow that. Beyond that, getting away from these incredibly gerrymandered districts where people scratch their heads when they look at a map and wonder how this person is my representative when I live way down here and they live way up there 
And that's done for, for one reason and one reason only, and that's for political partisan advantage uh, to get them elected to the General Assembly. And that's not the way we should do it. What role do you see Republicans playing in the redistricting process? We're going to be very vocal in our, um, uh, I think, holding the Democrats to some of the ideals that we've talked about. Uh, there are, I believe, 32 members of the, the Democrat majority in the House who have actually voted for a constitutional amendment to create a redistricting commission, including the speaker himself. He voted for it a few years ago. We're going to raise great questions, I'm sure, about what data they are going to use if they're going to draw maps by the end of June. And beyond that, again, back to the governor. I mean, the governor, the governor has to be true to his word. One thing that, that the governor could uh, really engender support within the people of Illinois is coming through with his commitment that he's made to make sure that, that the remap process is fair and that we have fair maps going on. What have you heard from colleagues on both sides of the aisle more recently when it comes to your proposal? I, I think people support the commission process. I think there are many like-minded Democrats and Republicans that, that believe we've gone on for far too long uh, allowing someone like Mike Madigan to draw the maps in Illinois. And we've seen some great change in the state recently. And this is another avenue that I would ask my Democrat colleagues to say, this is time for change. And if we work together to get that done, I think it's a possibility. And I think there's some Democrats privately who definitely agree with that. But unfortunately, you know, sometimes what people say in private isn't what they <laughs> what they vote on in public. This is going to be a process of engagement over the next several weeks and months. Uh, I look forward to it, and it's but it's it's going to be uh, something I hope that we get on the other end that are maps that are they're made much better than we do today. That was Republican State Representative Tim Butler. He spoke with reporter Christine Hatfield. Uh, final details of where and when public hearings will be held for the House Redistricting Committee have yet to be announced. This is 89.1 FM WGLT and WGLT.org. A tadpole is a little bit like a baby bird, according to an Illinois State University scientist. Student reporter Katrina Peterson talks with ISU professor Matt Dugas about tadpoles and their begging traits. It makes its whole body stiff, and then it vibrates really, really, really fast. Um, And those vibrations seem to be what, well, it seems to be related in whether the mom's going to feed it or not. The offspring are in individual rearing sites, which is really good for studying begging because if you imagine a bird nest everybody's begging there's all sorts of stuff going on they're kind of pushing each other around they're all begging the parent sees them all together and and that's very different from the parent interacts with one tadpole at a time that's doing a display and she feeds it when tadpoles emerge about 10 days after the female lays her egg she returns to transport them on her back one at a time why is it only one at a time in that article we talked about this one species that i spent a lot of time working on so in, in other other dart frogs, so in dart, so this is not this kind of parental care. Some of these kinds of parental care are in you know multiple species of dart frogs, and a lot of them it's the males that'll transport them, and they transport them sort of as a group, so uh, more than one at a time. Why these females do most most of the time it's one at a time? I don't know. Um, one of sort of more tricky to me is how that happens, right? Because you would think everybody would want, all the tadpoles would like to be on their mom's back when the mom is there. So how does she manage to get only one at a time? I don't know. You know, the simplest answer would be that they put them in um, really small bodies of water. And so those small bodies of water may not be good for more than one tadpole 
or what happens often is those tadpoles might fight and kill each other. The female lays a clutch of about six eggs and then disappears for a while. Then the male cares for those eggs, moistening them and keeps them from drying out. Is that normal for frogs or is it specific to the species? In most of the dart frogs and probably the ancestral dart frog, it's the male who's doing everything. So the male is actually transporting the tadpole too in most of them. So this female transport has only evolved a couple times, or, or maybe it's only evolved in one genus. I don't know for sure. Um, you know, I don't have it in my head, but that's a rarer. Female um, transporting the tadpoles is rarer. So it's often the male that does that. And normally, in that is really common in frogs. It's also common in fish for males to do the defending. What characteristics of the poison frogs aid to their mating abilities? Is it color, croaks? It, lots of frogs generally, there are most of the variation in, among males is explained by that calling behavior. Um, and then they also, the females also look at the males. And so it might, it might be a color thing. It might be the size of that vocal sac that's inflated when he's calling. So there's something, something beyond that, but certainly it is the call that draws the females in. The brightly colored poison frogs are among the most toxic animals on the planet, with chemicals released from the skin of some species capable of killing humans. When studying them, how did you avoid the risk of being poisoned? Everybody likes to drown test. There's one genus, and the members of that genus in South America, not in Central America, the members of that genus in South America can be very, very toxic. Um, so they're really bad. Most of them you wouldn't want to eat it, you wouldn't want to lick it, but it's not that bad. Like these ones, I, I, you know, this is not advisable, but like, you know, I handle hundreds of them and eat my lunch, it's no problem. You've spent nearly a decade observing the tiny poison dart frog. What's your favorite aspect about the frog? What do you like most about it? From not a, not a work position, I mean, they're charismatic little animals, right? That's why you like them too, and why I like them. They have you know, they have big eyes, they're sort of out, they're active, they're doing things all the time. Part of the overlap between what makes them sort of cool, I think, for people to, to look at in a zoo or aquarium or something and to work on is that they're small. And they do all these cool things, but they're really small. And so they do these over very small spatial scales. <laughs> From a work perspective, a thing I really like about it is that we can get them doing natural-ish things. So it's not the same, being in a lab is not the same as being in nature, but we can get them sort of behaving normally in a really small amount of space relative to something like, you know, if you were studying birds or you were studying, uh, you know, elephants, right? The space you need would be much, much different. In Professor Matthew Dugas's labs, the primary focus is how and why offspring traits evolve. Professor, thanks so much for joining us. Awesome. I'm Katrina Peterson. A tadpole eats an average of an unfertilized egg a day, needing about 50 before metamorphosis occurs. This is Sound Ideas. I'm Charlie Schlenker. Family took center stage on Dan Hubbard's new five-song EP, Fall in Love Again, Quarantine Lullabies. The Bloomington-based singer-songwriter tells John Norton his wife and kids were not just the inspiration for the intimate acoustic recording, they became a part of it. There's even a moment when I'm recording this song, Faja, 
about my dad, I recorded it in the same room with my kids. I just told them to be a little quiet. And then when the song's over, you can hear my son, Ben, you can hear him say it in the recording, hey, dad? And I go, yeah, but it was another one of those happy accidents. Like it's a song about fathers and sons. And then you can hear my, my son calling for me at the end of the tune. So stuff like that was happening all over. And then intentionally, the last track, I definitely uh, flat out asked the kids to sing and clap on it because I thought it would be a great way to end the album in a joyous manner. So you talked about the kids were a happy accident that got mixed into the music. But you've got a song specifically about your kids with Power Wheels that starts the album. That's definitely the song that gave me the idea to do this little album. At times falling in your tough shells, crumbling in your big heart, showing in your sweet little face. Because, you know, we're like a year away from when this quarantine really started. My youngest son, Emery, I hadn't yet written a song for him. And my other kids, Zoe and Ben, I had written them at least a couple songs, you know? And so, you know, we're in a pandemic. We're so uncertain about everything. And one night, Emery just said, I, I don't want to die. I've got too many things I want to do, like drive a power wheels. No reason to hurry, and I don't want you to worry. And I promise you we're going to live a long, long time. That's the true like lullaby song of the album, trying to comfort my kids through through all this and everything else kind of sprang from there. Is this album something you felt like you wanted to do? Did you feel like it's something you had to do because you know you couldn't do a lot of other things during the pandemic? Yeah, I think it's I want to like stay active as an artist. You know, that's what we do as artists, right? We adapt and we we're wallflowers and we see everything that's going on and we want to comment on it. So I wanted to continue putting stuff out there for my fans, but there's also just the aspect that it was a joyous thing for us to do as a family. You know, there's a moment when we we're talking about the artwork, I had this idea for the artwork and so I'm, I, I'm running it by my daughter because she's an artist. Before you know it, Kaylin, my wife is joining in and my two boys are looking at this sketch we did and we're all talking about the artwork and it was a way for me to like capture this year together because I know it was super hard for a lot of people. It's been hard for my wife running a business in this, but it's been a blessing for us and something I wanted to capture, I think, um, this year together. Do you mind talking about the song, The Promise? Not at all. Yeah. You know, it's about faith and hope. It revolves around a couple different stories. One that I kind of imagined in, in my mind being down at the beach in uh, Gulf Shores, Alabama, right before the pandemic hit. And there's, there's a, a story I saw on the news about this hundred year old man, just about his life and how everyone around him has passed. And he's had to make these new friendships and new connections. And it, it just caught my attention, you know, about what keeps us going and what gives us hope in this life. He's got a hundred years under his belt. More than a few lifetimes of stories to tell. 
I, I consider myself a, a man of faith. So it was about a couple of different stories, but it's about me too. What keeps me going? I have what I consider to be a really blessed, lucky life, but I also know that there's something else that keeps me going, I guess. I got everything in this world I could ever want. You spent a year at home with your family. How has that changed you? How has that changed your relationship with your family to be home for that extended period of time? Yeah, well, I've I've learned a lot, I think. One of the things I'm thinking about as we're kind of coming out of this pandemic is what do I want to take from, from this time? Thinking about, uh, honestly, a lot of things I didn't like about my life and career before all this happened. And I want to do the best I can to cut those out. For instance, the winters are always hard because I'm trying to tour around the Midwest in bad weather and make a little bit of money. There's not a lot of money to be made, honestly, during those times. And this winter, the live stream thing has been awesome because it's given me the opportunity to like take a few weeks to plan a show and play the songs I want to play and what stories I want to tell. And I haven't had to leave and put myself at risk or my family. That's kind of one of those things I've taken from it. Fix your hair just right. The tune Fall in Love Again, that's a, I think it's about marriage and like rekindling that fire in your marriage. And that's about, you know, paying attention to one another. Hold the door for her. She looks beautiful. But it's also, the more I think about that title, it's about music in general. Taking time to reset and cutting out the things I wasn't enjoying and focusing on the things I am enjoying and, and really just falling in love with music all over again. You don't want it to end. You want to give her everything. Ask her if she can fall in love again. Bloomington singer-songwriter Dan Hubbard speaking with John Norton. Hear and download his new EP, Falling in Love Again, Quarantine Lullabies, at danhubbard.net. And you can hear the music of Dan Hubbard on WGLT's Highway 309 at wglt.org. This is Bloomington Normal's Public Media. Black history is an essential part of American history, not just during Black History Month, but all the time. WGLT, the City of Bloomington, and the Bloomington Human Relations Commission congratulate the 2021 Black History Essay Contest winners. WGLT brings you readings of those essays. Today, it's Adrut Kulkarni, a sixth grader at Bloomington Junior High. Here are his words. Throughout the years, segregation has been a huge problem in our society. Some African Americans, however, rose to the occasion and fought for their rights. Jesse Owens was one of these people. Jesse Owens was one of the greatest athletes to ever live and was once known as the fastest man alive. Not only was he known for his athletic achievements, he was also known for standing up against racial inequality. When he competed in the Big Ten track meet in 1935 in Ann Arbor, Michigan, he broke five world records and equaled a sixth, all in the time of 45 minutes. 
in the 1936 Berlin Olympics, in which Adolf Hitler looked to prove that African Americans were physically inferior to white people, Jesse Owens proved him wrong by winning four gold medals, and all the while, the German spectators were cheering him on. Jesse Owens was very influential and made a huge impact on our society. After winning four gold medals at the 1936 Berlin Olympics, Owens was allegedly shunned by Adolf Hitler when Hitler shook hands with all German participants but excluded Jesse. However, as Owens later remarked, when you returned to America, the president did not invite him to shake hands either. After the Olympics, however, Owens was unable to find a job as the Jim Crow laws enforced in the South made it extremely hard to get a job. Owens was forced to resort to taking jobs such as a gas station attendant, playground janitor, and the manager of a dry cleaning firm. Though he tried to take endorsement offers for money, this caused U.S. athletic officials to withdraw his amateur status, ending his career. He continued to take small jobs such as racing thoroughbreds, racing amateurs, and becoming a running instructor for the New York Mets. Despite all of the segregation and discrimination he faced, he kept pushing on, trying to make his way through life. When I first read about Jesse Owens, I was thunderstruck by all the records he broke and everything he accomplished, all while living in a segregated country. I was inspired by the way he kept pushing through, even when things got tough. When I feel like giving up, I think about how Owens pushed through and I tried to keep on going, the way he did. He is a really big inspiration to me, and thinking about him motivates me and makes me push myself. Jesse Owens was an amazing athlete. In under 45 minutes, he demolished five world records and tied a sixth. He then proceeded to win four gold medals while competing in a discriminative country. He accomplished so much in his athletic career, but when he returned to America, he was greeted with more discrimination. Despite all of this, he kept pushing on. He keeps inspiring all of us every day and is remembered as one of the greatest athletes to ever live and as an important part of the fight for racial equality. Adrut Kulkarni is a sixth grader at Bloomington Junior High School. Kulkarni is one of the winners of the Black History Essay Contest sponsored by the City of Bloomington Human Relations Commission. Thanks for choosing Sound Ideas on WGLT, made possible in part by Bloomington Normal Audiology. I'm Charlie Schlenker. This is Bloomington Normal's public media.